This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome everyone to today's program. I'm Kit Poliano, the Dean of the Division of Biological Sciences at UC San Diego. For those of you joining us for the first time, in honor of the 60th anniversary of the campus and the Division of Biological Sciences, we have launched our deep look into the future of biology public lecture series. I'm pleased to have you here for the second installment of our deep conversation series, which takes us into intimate discussions with top scientists regarding issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion in the sciences. Before getting started, I would like to thank our partners whose collaboration has been essential in helping us make today's event possible. Thank you to the Division of Physical Sciences, Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and the Center for Aerosol Impacts on the Chemistry of the Environment, CASE, for your collaboration in co-hosting this event today. For today's conversation and to honor Women's History Month, we have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Rita Caldwell, the groundbreaking microbiologist and first female director of the National Science Foundation. To introduce her is Professor Kimberly Prather, a distinguished chair in atmospheric chemistry and distinguished professor at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. Over the course of her career, Professor Prather has offered more than 200 publications in a wide range of prestigious journals. And she's been elected to the National Academies of Engineering and Sciences, and won many other prestigious awards. A primary focus of her research involves understanding how aerosols impact climate and human health. And during the pandemic, she's also been studying aerosols and masks and ways to combat the spread of COVID-19. And she's become a major public figure in this, this groundbreaking challenge we're all facing. She's also the founding director of the NSF Center for Aerosol Impacts on Chemistry and the, of the Environment, CASE. Thank you for being a part of this program, Professor Prather, and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. And um, yes, it's uh, my distinct honor uh, to be able to introduce our special guest today. Um, she is uh, a role model to so many and a hero to so many of us, including myself. Um, so it's, I don't know that I've ever felt kind of nervous introducing someone, but, you know, reading through and just sort of it, her accomplishments is amazing, and I'm going to try and do it in like a few minutes, um, which is challenging, as you will see, because she has been a distinguished leader in both science as well as um, administrative leadership positions. Um, you know, most people are either one or the other, it, you know, to, as, to excel at the level that she has, and she has done both at a level that I, you can't, you will, you won't believe, and I can't touch it as well as, but I will just sort of summarize it here. So right now, Dr. Rita Caldwell is a distinguished university professor, both at the University of Maryland at College Park, as well as at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Um, she's had, as I mentioned, an illustrious career as an environmental microbiologist, as well as a scientific administrator. She has degrees, which, again, I love her interdisciplinary nature. She in bacteriology, genetics, and oceanography, and with an application to infectious diseases, which, um, as Dean Poliano mentioned, uh, that's, it's very timely to be hearing from her at this point. Uh, briefly, uh, really briefly, her, just scientifically, she's published over 800 papers. And in her spare time, 19 books, and she's even produced a really um, great film, if you haven't seen it, you should, called Invisible Seas. 
Um, she'll mention that in her, I think she'll mention a little bit of it in her talk and we'll get into it more in a Q&A at the end, but she's also written a wonderful book called A Lab of One's Own, One Woman's Personal Journal Journey Through Sexism and Science. And if you haven't read it, I encourage everyone to read it. Um, it is really, really um, captivating and eye-opening, and it'll be a good um, topic for discussion. As I mentioned, she's most known for her studies of global infectious diseases through water sources and their impacts on global health. She's been heavily, you know, I think most notably involved um, in cholera research, um, which I think we'll hear more about, so I won't go too much into detail, um, but what I love about her science is she's taken it all the way from sort of the basic studies, and her book goes into this, through solutions, important solutions that have saved thousands and thousands of lives. As a leader, she's held many advisory positions in the U.S. government, nonprofit organizations, and private foundations. Just to give you a little glimpse, she's been the president of the American Society for Microbiology, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Institute of Biological Sciences, as well as served as the chair of the research board for the Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative, which she just finished in 2020. I'd like to comment on a couple of her leadership posts, just to make a comment, just things that stood out to me. Um, she was the first or the fourth woman that was a, the president of the American Society for Microbiology. 82 of the previous 86 were men. And there's just, that's in her story, in her book, but I just love this one because it's a classic example of what we call breaking the glass ceiling. She crushed it. Went from the fourth after 86 years to the following dozen years, 12 years, there were six female presidents. That is amazing. And that's what you want to do when you sort of break through. And she's done that. She did that and very, very well. From 1998 to 2004, she was, as, as, Dr., as Dean Poliano mentioned, she was the first female director of, uh, or first female director of the 11th director of the National Science Foundation. And, you know, again, her book kind of goes into her leadership style, which I really enjoyed reading. One notable point is that she increased the NSF budget by 63%, which today, to today, still stands as the the greatest period of growth in the 50-year NSF history. And finally, I'll just quickly mention, she's also was a key player in a National Academy report in 2018 on sexual harassment of women, um, which I'm, I think we'll probably talk more about during the Q&A session. Awards, there I could spend her whole time, so I will just briefly say she has 62 honorary degrees from institutions of higher education. She's won the National Medal of Science, which she received from George W. Bush. 2010, she won the Stockholm Water Prize. I mean, her list goes, is very long. She's a member of not just one Academy of Science in the US, but also in Sweden, Canada, Bangladesh, India. And she's also a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She also has a geological site in Antarctica named after her called the Kowal Massif in recognition of her work in polar regions. So you can see why I was a little nervous going through all of that, but I don't want to take up any more of her time. So um, I think with, what we'll do now is we'll uh, look at her, we'll listen to her talk, which will take about 30 minutes, followed by a Q&A, which will go till about 1.30. So we have time for lots of questions. So be thinking of your questions. And finally, before I hand it off to the movie, which I'm about ready to do, uh, I would like to just thank Dr. Caldwell for being our honored guest. It is such a huge honor for all of us to have you here to represent our, our special selection for um, International Women's Day. So thank you. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak to the University of California, San Diego and the community 
about the research that I've been doing over the past decades, actually, and also to describe a bit about some of the inclusions in the book that was published very recently by Simon & Schuster. What I'd like to do is talk about the work on cholera, which I started back when I was really a graduate student. And the story about cholera is very interesting because it's an acute water-related diarrheal disease. It occurs in pandemics. And ironically, we are currently in the seventh pandemic of cholera. So unbeknownst to the world, we are in two pandemics, the pandemic of cholera, but at the same time, the emerging and the devastating pandemic of COVID-19. Cholera occurs in about 50 countries. It affects about 7 million people. We've unfairly ascribed the Bengal Delta as the native homeland of cholera outbreaks, but really we had cholera in the United States, in Washington, New York, in the Gulf of Mexico, in Canada, in Europe, and it was a regular occurrence during the warm months of the year. But the discovery that my team and I made some 35 years ago was that the bacterium that causes cholera exists in the environment. It's part of the natural environment and it carries out a variety of very important functions, carbon and nitrogen cycling. So it can never be eradicated. And in fact, the pandemic nature is fascinating because there was just one serotype, serotype 01, until about several dozen years ago when all of a sudden a second serotype, 0139, emerged as a pandemic strain. So we know that it is variable, but it is part of the environment and that it's one of these emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases that we have to be aware of. Another discovery that we made, and this was from our work in, in uh, the Chesapeake Bay, was that the bacterium Vibrio cholerae, shown in this slide as the curved rod with the single polar flagellum tail, if you can see, that the bacterium is associated with plankton, with copepods. Copepods are the microscopic shrimp or crabs, if you will. They're of the same construction in the fact that they have hard white shell structure, but they're microscopic. And they're very abundant, most abundant in the world oceans. Here's a copepod, a female about ready to release her eggs into the water column. And on the surface of the egg sac is coated with vibrios. Now the vibrios produce a very powerful enzyme that breaks the egg sac so that the copepod can release its eggs into the water column. So we consider this a symbiotic relationship or perhaps commensal. So here's this massive pandemic-causing bacterium that is associated with this little microscopic creature in the environment. And the relationships then of temperature, salinity, flooding, rainfall, all of these play a role in the epidemics. We developed this model 30 years ago, and it proved pretty effective, where we realized, and from our studies, that in the warm months of the year, 
with lots of sunlight, phytoplankton become very abundant. Now, we know that these days because of so much pollution, we have um, plankton blooms. And this occurs with a mix of high nutrient and sunlight. But here, with the relationship to cholera, first we have the phytoplankton becoming very abundant. And then the zooplankton, these are microscopic animals really, feed on the phytoplankton. They become abundant, but as they deplenish the food source, then they break down and release the Vibrio cholerae into the water column. Anyone drinking the water that's not treated or polluted, uh, that is, anyone drinking water that is containing the bacteria can come down with the disease. Now, the other aspect of the work that we had done in the Chesapeake Bay was criticism. Of course, if I had been a male scientist, I probably wouldn't have been criticized so much. But the criticism that I couldn't possibly know what I was doing and that it didn't really have relevance for Bangladesh. So being challenged, I went to Bangladesh with my team and we discovered that in the remote villages, this is where they take their drinking water, these ponds around which the houses are built, and they use the ponds for washing clothes, for washing utensils, for washing food for the dinner or meals, and also for personal hygiene, including in the far corner of the pond, the drainage of the latrine into the pond. Obviously, bacteria don't stay in one place, so you have great tendency for tra transport of infection. But what we found was, just as we had observed in Chesapeake Bay, the bacteria are associated with copepods, the uh, colored, reddish colored uh, little animal in the slide. It, we can pick up the bacteria in other components in the plankton and in the water, but really it's the copepods that are dramatic in their transmission. Obviously, with very poor sanitation, person-to-person -person transmission is um, dominant. And for years, the medical community thought that the disease was transmitted just person-to-person. -person. But we really know now that the origin is the environment. And we've isolated the bacterium from all parts of the world, as have others, since we did our work in the 1980s, 1990s, and since. We've even isolated Vibrio cholerae from Iceland, where they've never had cholera, but the bacterium is found in the aquatic system. The other interesting thing about the Bay of Bengal was that about 1985, a satellite was launched, the first of the hundreds that are now circling the globe. This satellite was called Landsat, and it was able to, with its sensors, measure chlorophyll, sea surface temperature, and sea surface height. That was a boon to me because those are the parameters that influence cholera. So we asked if we could work with NASA. They jo we joined up with the team there. And what we were able to show that indeed, the satellite data shown here, sea surface temperature, but similar charts for sea surface height and also for chlorophyll. When this was tied together, 
you can see the red line of the cholera cases in the Bay of Bengal. We measured this one-mile quadrant just offshore in the Bay of Bengal for sea surface temperature, sea surface height, and chlorophyll. And then adjusting for the time lapse that I mentioned between the phytoplankton and then the zooplankton bloom, it worked out extremely well. This was published 21 years ago, the first measurement by satellite of the predictive capacity of a major human disease using satellite sensing. We now have much more sophisticated models. We, we've been very successful, not only in, in including other parameters, but we, we now know that pretty much if there's a very hot temperature heat wave, and then four weeks later, a torrential rainfall, which is what happened in Haiti in 2010. And then you couple that with a breakdown in the water system for distributing water to communities. And this is what happened in Haiti in 2010 with the earthquake. You have a high cholera risk. We now use a variety of satellites. In 1996, we used Landsat, as I described, but now we now incorporate data from a variety of satellites that provide us even the ability to monitor movement of populations on the land. And this allows us then to do very sophisticated analysis. Here's an example. Hurricane Matthew uh, went through um, Haiti and then along the coast of the U.S. Um, the track was monitored to and we were able to get the data and we did our analysis and what you see on the left is what our risk model predicted would be the areas of Haiti of highest risk for cholera. And you see on the right the actual cases that occurred. They had this warm temperature, the hurricane dropping tremendous amounts of water flooding the, the communities in Haiti, the perfect storm as predicted by our cholera risk model. We did another analysis, this time of Yemen. In 2017, the worst recorded cholera epidemic in history began in Yemen. Millions were afflicted and hundreds of thousands died. We then, at the end of 2018, did another retrospective analysis. And on the left, you can see our prediction for the part of Yemen of highest risk for cholera. And you see in the bottom right, the actual numbers of cases where they occurred. So again, unusual accuracy, really very striking. We published the paper very quickly with these data. The paper was read by a colleague in England in January of 2018. He called us and asked if we could collaborate. Of course, we were very enthusiastic and we did. So in 2018, starting in February and March, we provided the British Foreign Aid Agency working in Yemen 
And together with the British Meteorological uh, Agency providing rainfall and other parameters of the environment. And then, of course, NASA provided us the funding for our work. And in collaboration as well with UNICEF. So with the aid agencies, UNICEF and DFID, the British Aid Agency, we provided them every month with a risk map. In fact, as the cholera season got closer, we provided a risk map almost every week. They were then able, based on the risk map, to locate physicians, medical supplies, safe water, and other needs for what would be a cholera epidemic area. And indeed, in 2018, cholera was significantly reduced in Yemen. So we continue to work with the British Aid Agency and UNICEF, and we now provide every month a risk map for them to work from in determining where to locate their supplies, their medical personnel, and to be prepared for the potential of a cholera increase. Now, another aspect of our research is to be able to study the nucleic acid, the DNA of the bacteria. This is a bacterium. And we've developed a technique some 15 years ago of extracting the DNA, sequencing it, matching it up with a massive database of curated genome sequences that allow us to identify everything, bacteria, viruses, fungus, protists like parasites, present in a given water sample, food sample, or even a clinical sample. And even more to the point, we can determine the presence of genes coding for antibiotic resistance or for pathogenicity or for metabolic traits. And this gives us microbial identification and pathogen characterization. We now can do this within 25 to 30 hours from the time of receipt of a sample to actually producing the report. The analysis that I'm showing here is the least of it. It takes literally minutes to do the bioinformatics. Most of the time is taken up with extracting the DNA and doing the actual sequencing. I'll give you an example of application to water safety. We've been working with the Orange County Water District in California. We started working with them about five years ago, five or six years ago, when the tremendous drought hit California. The Orange County District is the water supply for Los Angeles and uh, the environs. Because of the drought, the Orange County Water District was recycling water. In other words, sewage water from the sewage plant was being piped to the drinking water plant. The sludge, of course, was sent to sea, out to sea. But the incoming water was, of course, screened heavily, carefully, and then treated with sodium hypochlorite. Again, micro, um, 
microfiltration was used, and then uh, reverse osmosis, and then eventually it would be transported to be UV irradiated, and the water then would be continually treated with chlorination, etc. The question was, how safe is the water? By the routine standard tests, just growing presence of bacteria, it was, of course, safe. We were able to do the analyses very elegantly to show that, indeed, that gray mass are all the many kinds of bacteria present in the sewage water coming in. But by the time it's gone through microfiltration and reverse osmosis, all that's left are water bacteria that we would have in any drinking water um, from a tap uh, wherever we live in the U.S. So clearly, it was being very successfully treated and no pathogens, no bacterial pathogens. Similarly, for viruses, the gray area, Q1, carried all kinds of viruses, including some human viruses. But by the time it has gone through the microfiltration and reverse osmosis, very, very few viruses, in fact, the only ones really are the ones that attack bacteria and not humans, bacteria, bacteriophages, bacterial viruses. The other question was, by mixing this sewage water with pond water, because it was 50-50, 50% would be the sewage water coming in, and 50% would be the dwindling water supply at the time from the rivers and streams and groundwater in California. And there was a concern that by mixing sewage bacteria with the groundwater, that there would be a transfer of genes that code for antibiotic resistance. Because we can test for that, we were able to reassure the Orange County water system that they were not really producing antibiotic trans uh, transmission to the water bacteria. The only antibiotic resistance that was occasionally coming through was what was present on the water bacteria than normal, healthy, normal bacteria, of which there weren't very many, but of those that were present, they were not antibiotic resistant. Let me turn now to COVID-19. What have we learned about cholera? This pandemic that we've been living with for years, and this new pandemic that has struck with a vengeance. Here is a diagram not terribly attractive, but it describes all too well the effect of this virus. Now, COVID-19 is caused by a virus. We've been talking about cholera caused by a bacterium. So for COVID-19, it affects the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, even intestines. Diarrhea is a, is a symptom, just as it's a main symptom of cholera. But in any case, it even affects the heart and the brain because we all know and have read now that if you lose the sense of smell or taste, you have been suffering from a severe case of the disease. The reason it attacks all the organs is because the virus attaches to a receptor, an ACE, A-C-E-2, ACE2 as it's called, which is present on almost, almost all of the organs of the body. So we 
did our analysis, just as I have shown you, for the water system, for the sewage system, could we detect the virus and its variants in a sewage sample? And the answer was dramatically yes. We were able to do this in February and March of 2020. And so that allowed us to take advantage of the information from the literature published very quickly by others in 2020, last year, showing that at least half the people who get infected with COVID-19 virus will shed the virus in the stool. Furthermore, now this looks like a complicated slide, but it really isn't. If you read from the top to the bottom, you will see that it lists patients from one to 41. So 41 patients and their results are shown horizontally. So the red line, horizontal red lines, are the time periods for those patients that the throat swab was positive, the nasal throat swab. But the yellow-orange line shows how much longer after the throat swab or the nasal swab is negative that you will be able to pick up the um, virus in the stool sample. So it's a matter of weeks, maybe a couple of months. Now we took this to advantage in that we have now been working with the state of Maryland, with the governor's office, the Department of Environment and the Department of Health for the state of Maryland. And we've been sampling, now we're sampling about 50 sites around the state, college dormitories, as well as the sewage plants and the treatment plants and uh, assisted facility um, wastewaters as well. Here's an example of what we observed in July in Frederick, Maryland, with excellent collaboration with the public health director there and her team. Absolutely wonderful. And also collaboration with the sewage treatment plant operators. And we can see that the blue line indicates the numbers of coronavirus, the, um, the uh, COVID-19 causative agent, the numbers in sewage, in wastewater. Now you see an orange line as well. That's because the blue line represents the genes recommended for, to be tested by the CDC. We also use another set of genes to confirm our findings. So we are very certain of the results that we've been getting in Maryland. But you see that jump around July 21st, 22nd, to about the end of July. The beginning of that peak preceded the numbers of cases, actual people infected, preceded it by about four to seven to 10 days. So this is an early warning system. And in fact, it was able to be used as such. It also can be used as the decline occurs. Then for that community, it's an indication that that may be more safe to go out again in a normal 
interaction with the community within the community. So it, it's a, an indicator that's really very effective. Now, what's fascinating is that we went a step, have gone a step, a big step further. We've used the model for predicting cholera that is being employed in Yemen. We modified the model to introduce the characteristics affiliated or associated with COVID-19. Namely, the virus reacts to humidity, so the dew point temperature is included in the analysis. We also are able to download from the satellites movements of populations, and we're also able to have access to cell phone traffic to understand where people are migrating to and from. And this has allowed us, in this case, in April 2020, our first attempt was highly successful on a county-by-county -county basis for the United States. On the left is the risk of COVID-19. On the right are the actual cases. We've perfected it even further and now preparing to um, actually put it to use. I want to close because as a woman scientist, I feel strongly that what we do, what we learn, we should make available as soon as possible. I've been describing the use of computational biology, um, satellite sensing, mathematical modeling, very sophisticated analyses based on the original simple discovery that the bacterium is naturally occurring in the environment. It's associated with copepods. So we did some experiments in the laboratory. If we just took a simple filter, nothing fancy, a simple filter, could we remove most of the cholera bacteria if they're attached mainly to copepods and particulate matter? So we did some tests in the lab where we used material that would be available to anyone in Bangladesh, any remote village. We tested men's t-shirt material. It wasn't very good. We tested Chinese poplin, very expensive cotton with lots of coloring. It wasn't very good. And then we tested sari cloth. In fact, used sari cloth that was used as rags, and we found that folded four or five times, it provided a very powerful filter that trapped copepods and particulate matter. And from the laboratory experiments, we found that it removed 99% of the cholera bacteria. So we were able to obtain funding from the Nursing Institute of NIH to do a three-year study where we trained women to be extension agents and to go out to the villages and train the women how to filter the water that they would be bringing back to their homes for their children and their families. We made it a point to explain to them to get a yard of this 
old sari cloth, fold it four or five times, and after use, rinse it, hang it in the sunlight, because sunlight is a disinfectant. Of course, it didn't take much to convince them, because to the right is the clear water, is it as clear as a tap water glass of water that you would pull from your own tap. And then on the left is the turbid pond water with all kinds of things swimming in it. At the end of the three-year study, we found that in the villages, and there were about a hundred villages and um, several thousand villagers, we were able to reduce cholera by almost 50%. And it was even cheaper than a nylon mesh, which was quite expensive, and it was even better, more effective. Now, we, we went back five years later because, again, it seems always get criticized, that it would not be sustainable. They wouldn't continue to do this. Well, we went back five years later to um, determine the rate of cholera in the control villages and in the villages where we had trained them to use sericloth filters. The only difficulty was that the control village women had learned about the sericloth filtration, and so they were doing that as well. However, we did get some new information, and that was that if a family did not filter, but was surrounded by families that filtered, they were protected. And that's called the herd effect. And you, we've heard a lot about herd effect with the COVID-19. So I want to just thank many, many students. Uh, this is just a fraction of students and colleagues and postdocs and visiting scientists from other countries and colleagues at, in Bangladesh at the International Center for Diarrheal Diseases Research and at the National Institute of Cholera and Enteric Diseases in Calcutta, India. And I would also like to point out that safe water is a global challenge. It seems to be a woman's challenge. We are the ones who take care of our families. And we do know, all of us know, men and women, that in this 21st century, safe water is the major challenge that we face as a global population. I've written much of this in my book, along with the stories of the time that I was at NSF chairing an interagency committee to track down the perpetrator of the anthrax crime just after 9-11, but also the story of being a woman scientist 40 or 50 years ago. It's better today, but it's still we still have problems. So I look forward to discussion with all of you, and I thank you and the community for your attention. Thank you for such an inspiring presentation, Dr. Caldwell. We're just so pleased and honored that you could join us here today. And now we will be entering the live Q&A session where we can dive further into your science, your book, and your journey in science and scientific leadership. But before we start, I'd like to introduce our two additional guests who will be joining us today for our Q&A portion, Vice Chancellor Margaret Leinen and Professor Vicky Gracian. Vice Chancellor Margaret Leinen is the Director of Scripps Institution of Oceanography, 
the Vice Chancellor for Marine Sciences at UC San Diego and Dean of the School of Marine Sciences. She is an award-winning oceanographer who is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the Geological Society of America, the American Geophysical Union, and the Oceanography Society, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She has served in key national scientific leadership positions, including as president of the American Geophysical Union, chair of the Atmospheric and Hydrospheric Science Section of the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, and president of the Oceanography Society. She has served for seven years as Assistant Director for Geosciences and Coordinator of Environmental Research and Education at the National Science Foundation. And during this time, she led government-wide planning for climate research through the US Global Change Research Program. At Scripps, she leads UC San Diego's Ocean, Earth, Atmospheric, and Climate Science Research and Education Programs, where she focuses on translating knowledge into action to address pressing environmental problems facing our planet and on training the next generation of leaders. Professor Vicki Gracian is the chair of the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at UC San Diego and is a distinguished professor in the departments of Chemistry and Biochemistry, Nanoengineering, and Scripps Institution of Oceanography. She is an accomplished chemist whose research focuses on gaining a better understanding of the chemistry of environmental interfaces. And she's an elected member of the American Academy for the Advancement of Science and the recipient of many prestigious awards, including the 2021 American Chemical Society National Award in Surface Chemistry. Professor Gracian began her independent academic career at the University of Iowa and rose through the academic ranks until she was named the F. Wendell Miller Professor in Chemistry in the Department of Chemistry with appointments in the Departments of Chemistry and Biochemical Engineering and Occupational Environmental Health. In 2013, Professor Gracian became co-director of the Center for Aerosol Impacts on Chemistry and the Environment, a multi-institutional NSF Chemical Center of Innovation headquartered at UC San Diego. And in 2016, we were uh, lucky enough to recruit Professor Gracian to join the faculty at UC San Diego as a distinguished professor and holder of the distinguished chair in physical chemistry. Thank you uh, to Vice Chancellor Leinen and Professor Gracian for joining us today. Vice Chancellor Leinen, could you please ask the first question? Sure, and uh, thanks for that introduction, Kit. And the most important part of it was the seven years that I spent at National Science Foundation because Rita was the director of the National Science Foundation while I was there. And uh, she's the one responsible for bringing me there and uh, has subsequently become a mentor to me. Uh, so Rita, uh, you, uh, you talked a lot about your own experiences in the book, which I absolutely loved. And uh, as, as closely as I know you, I still learned a lot of, of things from the book. Uh, but, you know, we have uh, uh, one of the big challenges is, that we really face is looking at uh, how, to, uh, how to support women, uh, whether they're students or postdocs or faculty. And, and many of the people that are trying to support us are men. And uh, I wonder if you could... Uh, uh, give some advice to the men who are trying to be uh, advocates for us and uh, to support us. What do you think that they need to be paying attention to? I, th I think the, um, 
well, first of all, great to see you, Margaret. Um, and um, indeed, it was a great time uh, working at the National Science Foundation. Uh, as for your question, I think the best advice is for men to stand up and say something. Whenever there's a, an uncalled for remark or, or an insult, either unintended or intended, to simply say in a pleasant way and using humor, which always helps, to suggest that um, that really wasn't the great thing to say or do. That's one, one important uh, recommendation. Another <clears throat> is just to serve as a mentor. For example, I was very lucky, I think, uh, in retrospect, because I was coming through at a time when it was really pretty tough to be a woman scientist, uh, as I describe in the book. But I happened to have a really great PhD thesis advisor, mentor, John Liston. <clears throat> Just as an example, when I um, finished my PhD and applied for my postdoc, as did my husband, to the National Research Council of Canada, <clears throat> the um, two of us each got a letter congratulating us that we had a, a National Research Council fellowship. But I got a second letter. It said, oh dear, the uh, rules are that um, of against nepotism <clears throat> is that husbands and wives cannot each have a fellowship. Well, that was kind of a big setback because that meant that I really wouldn't be able to do much work. However, the professor that I was to work with in Canada immediately sent a letter, probably because my professor, who was a good friend of his, uh, friend of Norm Gibbons. Norm Gibbons said, look, you can you have access to the lab. You can raid the stock room, whatever you need. But John Liston said, you know, why don't we apply for an NSF grant, which we did, to do the work that I wanted to do. And he made me co-PI. Now, here I am, just a fresh graduate with a PhD. But he had the conviction and the support um, to make me a co-PI. So I was able to go off to Canada as a visiting scientist because in addition, he talked the dean into um, appointing me as a <clears throat> research assistant professor and granted leave of absence. So therefore I arrived in Canada at the National Research Council with an NSF grant, my own money, access to the, to the um, stockroom, and I was able to hire a technician who incidentally turned out to be a PhD woman from the University of Wisconsin who with her husband was now living in Ottawa, Canada, but was not able to work because of nepotism rulings. So it all worked out extremely well. So I think these are the things that make a huge difference in anybody's career. And there many other examples. So I think to the men, you know, you gain an awful lot yourself by being able to uh, support a colleague and particularly a woman who does have the potential for doing something interesting in science. Professor Gracian, would you like to ask the next question? 
Yes, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Caldwell, for visiting us um, and giving such an inspiring science talk. And I'm halfway in the middle of reading your book, and I'm uh, finding it really fascinating. So my question to you today is uh, the following. Um, in 2018, the National Academies put out a report on sexual harassment of women in academics. Uh, the report focused on unwanted sexual uh, attention, sexual coercion, and what I thought was a new term, uh, gender harassment, that kind of gave us a new vocabulary for describing issues that negatively impact women. Um, my question to you is, how do you view the importance and impact of this report? Well, first of all, um... I was delighted that the report came out precisely at the best timing possible. Now, I was chair of the committee that, um, <clears throat> that, that actually um, um, had the report carried out. I, didn't, I was not involved in the report itself, but, but to enable it to actually be done. But what was very interesting is that we'd been working, uh, the committee had been working on that report for about um, two or three years. And so it was released precisely when the Me Too movement peaked. I mean, the concatenation was perfect because there was the documentation uh, in this very extensive report with tables and figures and numbers and surveys about that which the complaints for the Me Too movement were being made. So I think that was extremely effective. I wish I could take credit for the timing, but it was a concatenation that for once worked. I think the report is um, really a necessary documentation because the report deliberately was not, a, as they say in, in England, a whinging and gringing, whining or whatever. It was simply a documentation, a tabulation of surveys and you know, data. And therefore, it was really, really powerful. I think um, also the committee was just astounding. Uh, the co-chairs, one was the former, the first woman secretary of the Air Force and a uh, African-American woman surgeon president of Wellesley College. And then members of the committee included um, congresswomen and um, psychiatrists and scientists and so forth. So, so it was a it was a very powerful committee making a hugely important message, carrying a hugely important message. And I do think that the one figure in the uh, report of the pyramid showing the iceberg, the the physical attack is just the tip. But underneath is all of the innuendo and the, the verbal harassment that um, really is debilitating and, um, well, killing careers for women. So, so I think the report <clears throat> is very important, will continue to be important, and a, and a great reference. And by the way, I, I think it's either the second or third most downloaded report uh, that's been published by the National Academy of Science in its history. That's pretty good. Okay, so I, it was hard, it's hard for me to choose one question, Rita, but I'll, I'll get a little more time. But you can probably, it was like, I could talk about that report. I mean, 
the label of gender harassment was was a big breakthrough and you know the tip of the ice uh, that resonated we could talk about that forever but i have to t- ask you a question about what has become my favorite topic um over the last 11 uh, about a year about a year you know where i'm going with this right um which has to you know has to do with you know call your cholera research a lot of the research that's been done we always attribute we always call cholera um a waterborne disease right um and i just is there any evidence um you know with SARS-CoV-2 there's a big a lot of evidence is mounting that you know these viruses are airborne is there any evidence on cholera um for the airborne nature is people have people looked at air sampling to see if it's there that's that's an extraordinarily good question frankly um it's it's waterborne it 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 it, uh, contaminates food right but I don't know of any evidence of respiratory effect. One thing that is is neglected, which which I think does have a relationship to uh, to COVID virus, is that there's something called cholera gravis, which is a neurological involvement when you have a very severe case of um, or infection with with the vibrio cholerae, and um, there seems to be the propensity for extreme cases, not very common, but in extreme cases, for neurological involvement. And I think that should be pursued a bit more. And it may have to do with um, <clears throat> the capacity of the virus to attach to the surface of the intestine mm-hmm, mm-hmm. receptor. And there may be some, some relationship there. One of the things we had looked at was the, um, the, the, the possibility that um, the bacterium actually um, is transmitted in a way by attaching to the surface of the in- intestine that it then um, functions by causing, well, it's been shown by others, the sodium-potassium transport. And our idea was that um, it is the fact that it attaches to a receptor site that is present in the copepod that may be, recept- be present in the human. And I believe one of the, um, one, a colleague at the University of Maryland in Baltimore had shown that that may very well be the case. So there's similarity in the receptor sites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I just noticed that, you know, all, a lot of the work just showed that it gets, it's in the coastal zone. And so if it's in the surf zone, there's a good chance that, be, you know, it and other pathogens can become airborne. And we just know far less about that. So I was just curious um, about that. So thank you. Great. Thank you. Um, so Dr. Cobble, thank you for such an inspiring, inspiring presentation. And your book is just amazing. Um, we're, we'll now turn um, to questions from the audience. And I have a question that was, there's a question that's really aligned with mine. Um, I, my question, I grew up as a microbiologist in sort of the molecular genetic side and mechanistic side of path, bacterial pathogenesis. And so really was amazed and so impressed with your findings that Vibrio cholera attached to copepods and these invertebrates, which led to this finding that you could fill the, um, that you could filter out this bacterium and prevent disease using claw. And so um, there's a question in the audience about what led to the identification of sari cloth as the right cloth to filter the organism. And then to build on that, um, 
know, what was really the reaction of the microbiology community to this amazing counterintuitive finding? Well, there's an interesting and a funny story tied to that because um, we, it had been shown by others, not by my team, but some 50 years ago, it had been shown <clears throat> that <clears throat> the bacterium is a dose, the, the, the disease is a dose dependent disease. In other words, it takes about a million cells per mil or per teaspoon, if you want to put it that way, to come down really with a massive vomiting and diarrhea and losing, um, uh, becoming dehydrated and hence uh, potentially dying. Um, and so what we, what we um, figured out was that um, if, we, if we could remove the plankton, and we did the experiments in the lab. In fact, we even published a paper or two on filtering um, the cholera bacteria by, by using crude filters in the laboratory. <clears throat> and then it occurred to us that in Bangladesh, um, if we could just use something really inexpensive, and that's why we tried t-shirt material and, and that wasn't very good. And, and, um, and we wrote a proposal to NIH and we got really bad reviews. One of the reviewers said, this will not be possible. Men will not drink water that has been filtered using a used sari cloth, a woman's unclean sari cloth. Well, we were set back on that, <clears throat> but um, being undeterred, we submitted a proposal to the Thrasher Foundation, and I will always bless the Thrasher Foundation for um, a trial, for you know, a short study, just to see if, if this would work at all. <clears throat> and so the Thrasher Foundation gave us $100,000 to do a, about a three-month <clears throat> study. What we learned in that study in Bangladesh was that men were using sari cloth to filter the flies from their beer. So much for the reviewer from NIH. And so my advice <laughs> to young scientists who are listening, when you get your reviews and you're um, unhappy because you've been rejected, don't go in a corner and cry. Get mad <clears throat> and rewrite and resubmit ASAP. And so that's what we did. And that's when we got the three-year uh, study. But again, the NIAID didn't think the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases didn't think it was sophisticated enough. So they lateraled it to the Nursing Institute. Thank you, Nursing Institute. Very pleased. And we will always thank you for the study that we were able to do. So that's kind of some short stories behind. That's fabulous. Thank you so much. Filtering beer is very important. <laughs> okay, uh, Vice Chancellor Leinen. Um, there's a, an interesting question um, about your work in places like Yemen and Bangladesh, and I would say also many other places that you've worked uh, that are uh, that are are places that are male dominated societies. And the question was whether you had any trouble being respected. Uh, in those uh, in those environments, but you might just talk about that more generally about places where uh, it was a particular problem uh, or not. Well, I have a funny story first, and then I will uh, address the question directly. Uh, when I first went to Bangladesh in 1975, 
um, we were taken out to the remote village of the Matlab, as it's known. It's an international um, uh, kind of a laboratory, so to speak, where um, a lot of work has been done on the epidemiology and the disease uh, transmission factors associated with cholera. <clears throat> but I went there, and to get to Matlab, you, um, well, at least at that time, you boarded, a, we had a, a Volkswagen, kind of a beat up Volkswagen bus. And we drove about two hours to a place where we met a ferry, which um, took us across to meet a steamer. And then we uh, landed at, at a, were taken to a spot where we went by Boston Whaler to the remote village. And so when I showed up in the village, it, Obviously, I was in charge because I was telling my students what to do and what things to carry. And as we walked from place to place to do collect our samples, I noticed that the boys were sort of underfoot. The girls were running, the little girls would run from tree to tree and they would peek from around the tree. And they couldn't figure out if I was a man or a woman because I was wearing blue jeans and a t-shirt, but I was obviously telling the men what to do. So this was a very perplexed, at that time, this was 40 years ago, a very perplexing situation for these uh, little girls, but I'm happy to say that it has changed. And now when I go to the villagers, the villages, the uh, villagers, boys and girls, uh, are um, thronging around us and, and uh, asking questions. Now, the answer to the question, uh, was this a problem? I think the fact that A, I was an American and B, I was in charge. And by the time that I was doing much of the work, um, I had already published a lot. So um, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't pay attention, let's put it that way. If, if they were over um, snubbing because I was a woman, I just plowed on um, and got done what I needed to do. I was never rude. I, I tried very hard to be as, as polite as, as possible because um, it's really important to understand when you are in a different culture to make sure you understand how men and women in the culture behave. Um, working in Japan is, is really a bit different from working in Bangladesh, and even that's a bit different from working in Peru or Chile. Um, and probably, I think, the most um, lack of differential was in places like England. <laughs> so um, I think I probably get along a lot better getting work done uh, in Japan than I did maybe in London at that time. In fact, it was interesting, some of my very good friends, women friends at that time um, suffered a lot more than I did from the direct um, interference with their careers, I'm sad to say. Professor Gracian. Thank you. I'm going to take one from the audience here. Um, first of all, it says, I want to congratulate you for the awesome work that you've done and how you have touched millions of lives throughout your hard work. 
And what's most impressive is not just through your research, but also as an administrator and, and how you've made some really structural changes. So it's many millions of lives that you have changed. Um, but the question is, as a young woman with a family, we end up at the peak of a growing family responsibility and growing scientific career that both take up a lot of time at the same time. And so the question is, um, how would you advise regarding time management and how to manage guilt, if you will, uh, when you're trying to uh, do uh, both at the same time and you're feeling your research might be going a little bit slow and maybe you're not spending enough time with your children. So they want to, uh, this person in the audience wants to get some advice from you. I think the most important advice I can give is to stay the course, um, steady on. Um, of course, a bit of advice is to marry the right guy or, or to have the right partner. I, I had a wonderful, wonderful marriage of 62 years. In fact, um, um, Jack was hugely um, supportive. Um, we raised our children together. In fact, when um, my oldest daughter, Allison, was um, about uh, two months old, I was invited to give a lecture that would involve a week, being away a week. And I talked about it with Jack, and he said, oh, he said, go, he said, I'll take care of the baby. And he did. Um, and he's a phys he was a physicist, and he was doing research, and, and uh, we were in, in pursuing our careers together. So, so that, that really makes a huge, huge difference. Um, I think the other aspect of it is that um, the guilt, don't, don't let the guilt get you down. I did it first. I mean, you know, when my... Uh, youngest daughter came home one day and said, gee, mom, you don't bake any chocolate chip cookies because I never had time to do it. And I said, well, what's wrong with the ones I get from the bakery? And she said, well, it's not the same. However, when she was um, 14 and was thinking about going to medical school, I took her with me on a, uh, a three-week tour. We were doing, I was doing some research in Mali um, on the potential um, role of um, the environment in malaria, uh, that is if there was some way to um, take the cholera stuff to, it's cholera findings to malaria and its transmission. And I also brought her with me to Bangladesh and um, she got to get a tour of the, um, of the hospital there because they were very kind and knew that she was interested in doing medicine. So she's now a, a physician. She runs a a pediatric clinic, a clinic in Halifax, Nova Scotia, both the pediatric, de developmental pediatrics and, and um, 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 uh, a main, the main clinic for um, the children. Um, and I think um, the fact that <laughs> she ended up doing an MD, PhD, her PhD was on women's health, women and children's health in Tanzania. So she worked in, in uh, Tanzania um, and she has been fortunate to marry well as also a very supportive um, uh, husband who um, uh, is a writer. So, so I, I guess the answer is that you, you, you do what you have to do and most of all, you do what you love. Uh, even today, folks ask me when I'm going to retire and I say never. Yeah, because I really like what I'm doing and I've always loved what I'm doing. And I think that's the important thing. I feel that it's critical to, to tell young people 
not to study something that you think will get you a job, because what you've learned when you graduate, half of that is obsolete by the time you get your, you move your tassel from the left to the right or whatever it is when you graduate. Um, that's how fast knowledge is moving. So it, it's knowing how to keep up with, with the findings, being interested and uh, reading uh, and always asking questions yourself. I think that's how you achieve success. But again, having a good supportive environment is so key. Yes. So I'm going to try and there's so many good questions. I, I'm having a hard time. It's like an amazing menu of questions. Um, so I'm going to try and um, I'm going to try and blend, I'm going to actually try and sort of combine too. Um, so basically one of the questions is sort I think they tie together. If, if somebody asked if there were times that you didn't feel motivated and how did you overcome it? Um, and that sort of feeds into, I'm going to blend them together. Sorry, I'm taking two, but I think they go together. Um, what do you think are the characteristics that led you to pursue a successful global career in science and leadership in spite of opposition from peers? Um, two great questions. I just got more determined. Yeah. If, if, I, if, I, if I couldn't do it, I was going to find a way around, under, around, what, over, whatever. I was going to get it done. And that's, that's sort of why the career that I did have was very zigzaggy. It wasn't straight. Mm-hmm. And if you asked me, um, you know, before I went to NSF, if you'd asked me 10 years earlier, would I, did I want to be the director of NSF? That, that never crossed my mind. It was simply doing what I was wanting to do. And so I, I, um, I always, I always just went ahead and, and, um, and, and, and decided if that's what I wanted to do, that's what I'm going to do. Um, I, the other thing I think is important is that uh, Jack and I did a lot of interesting things. Jack was, Jack is a, was a physicist, but he was a, an amateur astronomer and a naturalist. He loved um, mm-hmm. trees. He wasn't good on things that you had to see through the microscope, but he was great on <laughs> on trees and birds, and, and he loved to, to um, <clears throat> monitor a pair of eagles across the river from our house. And we have a telescope that's still aimed there. But, uh, I, but we were sailors. He was, he, he was a champion golfer, but he, he, he decided to take up sailing because, as he told me voluntarily, that golfing was too solo and that he couldn't spend time with the family. And so he took up sailing and we we sailed almost every weekend. It was quite amazing. And he was a, he never did anything. Just you know, try it out. He just did it with a vengeance. So we became racing sailors, and we 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 uh, traveled around the country racing sailboats. We 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 sailed in New Orleans, and we raced them on the Great Lakes. And by the way, lake sailing is really tough. And I tell a story in my book, which is true. We were in Marblehead, Massachusetts, and we were in the Nationals, and we were doing very well, but a storm came up, and I was terrified. And Jack's remark was, just keep your eye on the spinnaker. Keep it trim, trim, trim. Don't look back, trim. Then we rounded the mark, and I looked back, and half the fleet's upside down, capsized. And Jack said, with a big grin, he said, that's why I didn't want you to turn around. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. All right. Uh, Thank you. 
That's fabulous. Um, so thank you for that. So I would like to ask a question from the audience. As a woman in a STEM field, what can you do to be assertive without being seen as bossy or cold or harsh? And what can you do, I'll add to that just a little bit, what can you do to get your voice heard, um, with, especially as a young and upcoming leader? That, that's a really, really hard question. It's a good one, but it's hard because um, no matter what you do, uh, if, you're, if you're too quiet, you're, you're, um, you're not listened to. If you're too noisy, you're not listened to. So, so how, do you, how do you go about it? I, I think humor helps, gentle humor, uh, not making fun of someone, but but just bringing in um, a, a side comment or so, or, or or making getting your point across that is clear, but at the same time not uh, full of very sharp pointed arrows. Um, and I I learned how to run meetings and get things done. Uh, and I tell this story often because uh, it turns out that um, I think other women have used it to advantage also. And that is, I have found early on um, at meetings, particularly when I was vice chancellor of the University of Maryland uh, to John Toll, who was chancellor at the time. And we would have meetings, there was a 13 campus uh, organization. So there were you know, all these presidents and it was a big organization. Um, that I would make a comment and um, there'd be kind of a pause. And then the discussion would continue and some guy would make, one of the other male presidents would make a comment, same thing I had said. And then I'll say, you know, that, that's pretty good. We should do that, we should do that. That's a good, good thing to do. So rather than getting ticked off about it, I just learned that that's how to seed your ideas into the conversation and get things done. And when, when I became chair of meetings like that or director of NSF, I just made sure that everybody around the table had their say and would make suggestions as we had the discussion, which would invariably be, be picked up by one of the males. And then I could compliment him on the great idea. And then we could, then I could have a consensus and say, okay, I, I hear that we're all interested in going in this direction. They'd be all in this nodding of heads and we get it done. So I, I didn't get all this praise, but what the heck, I got done what I wanted done. I found that um, I read a, a Justice Ginsburg's, uh, one, of her, uh, one of her books, and <laughs> she was quoted as saying that, you know, she would make suggestions and it would be ignored. And she said, and I don't think I'm that confused a speaker, quote unquote. So, so if if she's had that problem, as and I think uh, um, other many other women have had the sim similar problem. It's a it's a form of mans mansplaining and mansplaining. But if you don't get all uptight about it, but just use it to your advantage, you can get a lot done. I hope the men listening <laughs> don't take umbrage. <laughs> Just learn. That's perfect. And do you have any comments on how not to be perceived as bossy or cold or overly aggressive? Well, one of the things I've had to learn is to curb a temper. I had to learn very early on that um, getting angry and, and 
screaming and shouting gets you nowhere. It, it really doesn't get you anywhere. I, I learned at NSF that it was much better to uh, have to, to suddenly say, oh gosh, I just remembered I have a phone call. And I would excuse myself for five minutes, walk, you didn't know that, Martin, walk around the building, come back to the meeting, and then I could carry on um, rather than getting all uptight. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That's very good advice. Okay. Uh, Vice Chancellor Linen. And you will always, always will be. The answer to the question, of course, is that the microbiome uh, has become really dominant, and we read about it every day. Um, we, according to some calculations, we're 80% microorganisms, uh, and the other 20% are, are human cells. And that's only because those cells are larger than microorganisms. And it's also been said that if if uh, we do ourselves a disaster, as we seem to be with climate change. That the those who will win in the end will be the microorganisms and the insects, not the humans. So they, the the vast majority of microorganisms are beneficial. In fact, um, um, it's even been shown that by introducing microorganisms from healthy individuals into the gut of of individuals suffering, for example, from Clostridium difficile infection is one way to actually treat the infection is by introducing the normal mix of microorganisms. It, it, it's also clear that um, in the environment, when we disturb the environment with huge amounts of pollutants, now what we are doing is selecting for the adverse types of microorganisms. And it, 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 to, to regain the natural state, we have to somehow find a way to, to re-collect re and, and mix together that healthy, normal, protective microorganisms. Frankly, if it weren't for the microorganisms on our skin, we would have infections all the time. Uh, we're, we're coated with very interesting, our skin carries a kind of waxy uh, shell, if you will, or waxy outer coating microorganisms that um, are very protective. So, the question, Sylvia, is a very good one. The vast, vast majority of microorganisms are beneficial. Hey, um, here's another interesting question. Um, it says, I'm really inspired by the barriers you have broken as a woman in science and the work you have done for other women. Thank you for taking the time today to share this with us. I'm wondering if you have any comments on the intersectionality of those experiences and efforts and the recent focus on racism in science. Specifically, are there lessons we can learn from the strides women have made in science over the last decades that can be applied to diversifying science even further? 
yes, yes, I do think that it's really important uh, that some of the lessons learned from from my book uh, can be very, very effectively applied in the issues of of the less represented um, uh, individuals in our society. I'll use the example of when I was president of the American Society for Microbiology. There had been 20 years between presidents, the first president, woman president in in the the society which had been founded back in, I think, uh, 1895. The first woman president was 1929. The next one um, was Rebecca Lansfield in 1941, and that was because all the men in quotation marks had gone to war, and therefore they could, they had to, they had to uh, elect a woman. And so what I learned, which was very interesting, was that as president, I served as the nominate, chair, chair of the nominating committee, but in the process of carrying out the, the meetings with the nominating committee, I discovered that we published the list the, the, the slate in August in the, uh, the, the, the newsletter of the American Society of Microbiology with the notice that if you wanted a write-in candidate, it had to be submitted in June, the previous June. Well, <laughs> that meant it was impossible. So when I learned that, uh, as the committee was doing its work, I, ca- I got in touch with the women's committee and said, hey, if you want another woman president before another 20 years, get a write-in candidate straight away. And that's what they did. Uh, they, they started, they went out to get 20, you had to have 20 signatures. They got, uh, I think, 100 without any trouble within a week. And so they submitted the, the write-in candidate who won. And there was a whole slate of women presidents right after that. So it's working the system. Figuring out how the system works, and then making sure that you you use the system as it's properly used. I'm not suggesting misuse. I'm just simply saying, find out how the system works, and 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 that can make a big difference. It, due to climate change and the increasing interactions between the environment, microbes, animals, and humans, I believe your disciplinary approach will become the future of public health, the One Health movement. Women are often implementing these approaches in places around the globe. In your opinion, what could institutions do, be doing to support this type of research more? Great question again. These are all good questions. Um, the One Health Movement makes a whole, whole lot of sense. And that's essentially the fundamental aspect of it is reuniting veterinarians and, and uh, human medical doctors. The fact is that veterinarians and uh, physicians who practiced uh, medicine um, worked together back in the 20s and 30s, but there was this bifurcation, this separation that occurred, I think, in the 40s and 50s. And it's very artificial, as we now are finding out, because the emerging infectious diseases and the re-emergent infectious diseases are the ones that come from, are transmitted from animals or from the environment to humans and vice versa. And so understanding those interactions is, is really critical to the 21st century public health. And I think that we will see, at least for maybe for the next decade, I hope longer, a, a reinvestment, a, a massive investment in, and, and this is beginning to happen in the Biden administration, in public health. 
and understanding that we have to collaborate globally. If we don't, it's it's suicide because the disease, I, and I'm very interested in the work that Kim is doing, Kim, Dr. Prattle, because I am convinced that we have intercontinental transmission of infectious disease. And, and, and Dr. Prather already has some data to that effect. And so have, so have some of my students. And I think we've got to make this, we, we've got to get this out into the, the, into the open, so to speak, into the, into the literature, so that it's understood that these micro droplets go a long, long distance. And one of the observations that I had made, which as a woman scientist got really battered about, but it's now in textbooks, was the, the understanding that gram-negative bacteria, those bacteria that don't form hard sh uh, shell spores, do go into a non-culturable state. And they do survive mm -hmm. without dividing or reproducing and for years and years and years. And I suspect that this may be the case, particularly for viruses, because they don't need to do anything. They, they crystallize until they actually enter a cell. So, yeah. so I think we need to understand a whole lot more about this interaction of the microbial world and animals and plants and humans. Thank you. And I, I, I look forward to working with you on that project. So thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. So Dr. Caldwell, there's a really interesting question from the audience asking, what is the single most important piece of advice you would give to a young female scientist as she embarks upon her career about how to uh, overcome the, the challenges she may face? The best advice I give is get yourself a posse. And what do I mean by that? <laughs> um, get, make friends with the women, um, young women scientists who, or whatever age that you are, um, not just in your discipline, but in, in, let's say you're in microbiology, in engineering, in physics, in sociology, women, women who are starting their careers, have coffee together, meet now and then or regularly for lunch uh, or dinner or whatever, and talk about what really makes you unhappy and what seems to be thwarting you in your career. You'll find out that it's not your fault. It's the system. And it and it's so much more reassuring. I wish I had had that when I because I was usually the only woman at meetings or the only woman, I was the only woman in the microbiology department at the University of Maryland. I was the only woman in the microbiology in the biology department at Georgetown University. Um, so having the opportunity to talk to other women who are going through the same difficulties and 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 everything from child rearing to, to uh, getting recognized at the faculty meetings, et cetera, or being saddled with all of the dog's body work, you know, the, the library committee and the radiation committee and the, and the informed consent committee. The guys can do that too, you know, they're not hopeless and they're not helpless. So, so um, but being able to speak up, which I think the chapter that I wrote about Nancy Hopkins, I think is a, is a perfect example. She, she went around and measured the labs because she felt that she wasn't being given a lab um, that she needed for her research and found out all the women weren't being given 
the size labs they needed. But 15 of the 16 women faculty signed on to her petition to the president of MIT and changes were made. So, so I think, get yourself a positive. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Caldwell. That is fantastic advice. And thank you for your leadership and being such an inspiration to all of us. I know here, it's really been a pleasure to have you this afternoon. I wish this conversation could continue, but we're right at our ending point. And so thank you again for joining us. And thanks to each and every member of the audience for joining us and for your fabulous questions. And thank you to my co-host here this afternoon. Uh, that's it. Have a fabulous rest of your day. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.